Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. Today, we're here with uh, folks who work at the MAPC, Metropolitan Area Planning Council. And why don't we first uh, introduce ourselves? I'll go first. I'm Amy Bennett. I'm a longtime arts administrator and a volunteer member of the Art Stays Here Coalition. Hi, I'm Anna Sengupta. I'm a trained urban and regional planner, and I'm the director of the Arts and Culture Department at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. And I'm Hannah Gathman. I'm the assistant director of Arts and Culture at MAPC, and I have a background in arts administration. So we know, we, we, we've we run in the same circles. Indeed. Great. Thank you guys for being here today. So first, why don't we talk about what the MAPC is, uh, kind of what your mission is, who all works there, and so folks can understand. Sure. The Metropolitan Area Planning Council, or MAPC for short, is the regional planning agency that serves the people who live and work in the 101 cities and towns that make up Metro Boston. Our region spans from Ipswich and the Northeast, wraps around, loosely follows 495 out to Hudson and Marlboro, comes back around over to Duxbury in the south and um, encompasses all of the communities within that region. Our priorities are smart growth and regional collaboration, and we were created by an act of the legislature in 1963. So 60 years in, our structure has evolved from a focus on core land use planning fields like environment, uh, zoning, transportation, to include much more innovative practices, including public health, clean energy, and arts and culture, as well as community engagement. We are guided by a regional plan, Metro Common 2050. It was adopted in 2021. And we're really committed to maintaining and advancing all of our practice areas and responding to the changing dimensions of need across the region. Great. Thank you. So why don't we first start with what is planning for people who don't understand what that or, or for people who do? Like, what what do you think of when you say planning? So Planning is a field that really grew dramatically in the 20th century. It started with this idea that you can kind of take a more rational approach to the way cities and towns are organized. And starting in the 1960s, there was a lot of pushback that really forced planning to reckon with the people that live in the neighborhoods and the ways that kind of big changes to communities could really rip apart the fabric of communities. And so planning has evolved to become more of an exercise where there's a government staff who are able to work with and then reach out to community-based organizations and community members to try to come together and develop a vision for what the future of the community can become and then set a direction for how to achieve that vision through a combination of policy regulations, 
programmatic changes to how cities are run, um, and then opportunities for the community themselves to kind of take action and take ownership over what the changes will look like. So when cities or towns or neighborhoods or even, you know, civically, when we're talking about like a master plan or neighborhood plan, government and stakeholders get together, talk about the pros and the cons and what's working, what's not working, what's needed in the future, and try to take into consideration all needs of all people who live, work, and play That's exactly <laughs> in, right. in each yeah. area, yeah. Um, and then how to do that over time collaboratively. That's right. That's right. And planning is not something that can happen once. It's it's an activity that has to happen over and over again. And while you may have a, a comprehensive plan or a master plan that tries to look holistically at the entire community, you also are doing neighborhood studies. You might be doing transportation plans, parking studies. And you know we've been bringing in arts and culture plans to that mix as well. And has arts and culture been part of planning or you know a priority in planning always? Or is that something newer? Well, I would say that arts and culture has been part of community development, and it's been a a central strategy of a lot of community development corporations, a lot of community-based activism to to shape what we're doing. But in terms of the planning field itself, that's much newer, and and we're really helping through the work of, of MAPC and through the Arts and Planning Division and the American Planning Association to push the idea and, and share the models for how arts and culture can really be integrated into planning as a practice. And how it benefits communities when doing so. And I would just add that MAPC is really on the vanguard of arts and culture as a sector in the planning field, uh, but that's rapidly developing. I mean, we're seeing arts arts and culture planners being hired, positions being created in cities and towns, certainly across our region and with municipalities we work with, but across the country as well. And why do you think that's catching on? I think there has been a lot of work, uh, as Annis mentioned, American Planning Association, as well as regional planning agencies like MAPC, and from grassroots, from folks living in communities who are saying and recognizing and coming up with studies and data that are really demonstrating how important arts and culture is to the vitality of their communities and their living places where arts and culture is getting pushed out over and over, which you know very well. And so they're advocating for these to be part of plans. And you know, you both mentioned communities having master plans or comprehensive plans. You know, that's required. All municipalities in Massachusetts and most states are required to have plans like that. And they might seem like really lofty 10,000 foot um, type of strategies that most people aren't interested in being part of. But when your city and town is then going to have a project or have a development come in, they generally have to show how that is mapping on somehow to some goal or strategy in that master plan that was published five, eight years ago. Uh, so these those plans are, are really important for actual boots on the ground decisions that get made every day in people's communities. And so you guys, for a layman's understanding in my own head, are the cheerleaders and the representation of arts and culture in the regional planning for Massachusetts in some ways. I think on three levels for regional planning in our region of greater Boston, making sure arts and culture is infused in the regional lens and the really big picture. Then working with cities and towns to make sure that arts and culture is part of their comprehensive plans, right? And then one level further than that, working with cities and towns to do very specific arts and cultural projects like public art making or creative placemaking efforts in their communities or a cultural plan for a community in a 
you know, smaller municipality outside of Boston. So not just looking at it and then incorporating it into plans, but also growing it. Right. I didn't know about the growing part. That is exciting. Thank you. Absolutely. Can you share, at least across Massachusetts, are there other MAPCs in other regions? So Massachusetts has 13 regional planning agencies, and they cover the totality of the state's geography. Um, They range in size. The Metropolitan Area Planning Council is by far the largest. We serve almost half the state's population and comprise about two-thirds of the state's jobs. But within those other regional planning agencies, we do see a lot of increased interest in supporting arts and culture throughout those the municipalities that they serve. And certainly in the Merrimack Valley Planning Commission has a partnership with the Essex County Community Foundation for a new initiative that where they've hired an arts and culture specialist as a staff. So that's a great development and really excited to see how that position grows and and the kind of experiments that they're putting forward to how a regional planning agency outside of the greater Boston region is really fostering this work across um, the other half of Essex County from what we cover. So something that I didn't put in the questions here, but I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I just got back from spending some time in Fitchburg, which I know that doesn't fall into MAPC, but the idea of gateway cities, well, I wonder what the gateway cities are across the region. Chelsea, Uh, Salem, Lynn, Revere, all of that cluster are. Okay, great. So all the waterfront. Malden, too. Malden, yeah. Okay, yeah. And the idea that all of the stuff that we normally talk about in terms of greater Boston and this area and the density and uh, property values rising and pushing out creatives. And that's kind of what we're all here to solve, right? But when you're in the gateway cities, they have the exact opposite problem, which is they have space. They've lost their industrial culture and people and population and work and community. And some of them are actually even looking to arts to help bring that back. And uh, I guess the one thing that I'll say about Fitchburg is that they just put shovels in the ground last Friday. It's going to be the Fitchburg Arts Community, where they're taking municipal city-owned buildings that are empty, and with their CDC, Community Development Corporation, choosing to make it artists live workspace that's affordable by design to help artists bring economic development and jobs and things to do to Fitchburg. Instead of here, where it's sometimes it's the problem, how do we get people to want to keep us? And then in other places, it's like, come on down, we want you. And I've been thinking about that insane dichotomy. And I've said to some of our colleagues, maybe it's crazy to try to keep what we have and make it healthy and doable in the Boston area. And maybe we should just take everyone and move them to Fitchburg or to New Bedford or, you know, Lynn. And obviously, then we come back to reality and say, no, we need to do both. And that they're each different. And wanting to think about what you've thought about gateway cities and kind of the flip side of what we're dealing with here. Well, we do work in quite a few gateway cities. So we've done work in Revere, we've done work in Lynn with Salem, Malden, Everett, Chelsea, um, quite a few. And I would say we, because we're regional, we're never thinking just about how Boston is experiencing the issue. And we're trying to understand and, and build into our work that yes, arts can spur really positive community changes. It can spur economic development, it can spur growth, bring new people in. But if you don't 
think about what are the conditions on the ground that you're creating, those same conditions will drive artists out once that economic development success has been reached. And if we don't actually put in an, the tools for municipalities to respond to changing conditions and we don't help municipalities stay connected to their arts and culture community and stakeholders so that their decisions are informed by the needs of that group, then it's just a, a game of shifting people around until they have nowhere to go and then they end up leaving Massachusetts altogether. And I would add that those same conditions that Annis mentioned that make places vibrant and livable and then too expensive and push those artists out, that's kind of a repeating bell curve if you take the long view of it, right? Because then you you the next phase of that is you lose your soul and people don't want to live there as much and don't want to spend as much money to be there because you lost everything that made, say, Union Square really cool in the first place. I think a benefit of regional planning agencies is that we, especially MAPC being the largest one in mass, is that we have a very, we have a long view on these issues and we have a lot of expertise in the room that just most cities and towns are not going to be able to have the capacity or resources to have the expertise in all those subject areas plus the long range regional view to attack the issues with. Right. So that's why, truth be told, I never knew about MAPC until, you know, over the past year in doing this work. I'm so glad that you exist. I think the first time I heard about MAPC was maybe last year about the Somerville Arts Risk Assessment. Do you maybe want to just give a little brief on that? Sure. Somerville came to us with this challenge that they knew they were losing art space. They had done a lot of work in trying to actually change their regulations, change their zoning to encourage and incentivize the development of art space. They have this really innovative, what they call the ACE set aside, that actually requires developers in particular parts of the city to create 5% of their ground floor square footage, reserve that for arts and cultural. 5 to 10. 5 to 10, yes, depending on where you are. 5 to 10% dedicated to arts and creative enterprises. But the challenge of how to implement an idea that's coming from the arts community and getting put into a, a planning framework was that they hadn't connected all of those dots and they really were missing a, the, the quantification of what's being lost versus what might be gained from the successful implementation of this set aside. So how do they make sure that that, that 5 to 10% is the right amount of square footage? How do they think about the gap in time between when you've lost a space and when new development comes online and you have like actual real space to put artists into? And so this project was really amazing. So we were able to quantify basically taking uh, measures of what causes development pressure map it onto all of the parcels so that you had a sort of exposure to development pressure score for every parcel in the city. And then do a survey of where there are existing known art spaces and start to look at, okay, well, what is it, what does exposure to development pressure mean in terms of whether a space is likely to be lost? Of course, in this climate, like even the lowest exposure to development pressure was generate, you know, we were seeing art spaces close, move, just not be able to survive. So it kind of gave that understanding that art space is just highly vulnerable to development pressure. And it also helped us understand, we did a lot of case studies looking at how this problem is being dealt with in other parts of the country. So we looked specifically at the Community Art Stabilization Trust in Oakland, California, 
and the cultural space program out of Seattle, Washington. And what we found is that municipalities actually aren't allowed to do the things that those that those municipalities are doing in other parts of the country. They have to ask permission from the state legislator to create a trust fund. And then they have to get permission every time they want to change the trust fund. They can't do those things on their own. And when we tried to suggest this to the city, they said, well, given the amount of time and the uncertainty of whether we would even get permission to do it, that's not a feasible next step. And then there wasn't a clear way to even start to preserve spaces. They have property owners who have a cultural use in their building. They know they need to transfer ownership of the building for one reason or another, but they really want it to stay a cultural use. And there's no mechanism in place that really allows them to do that, allows the city to support them and and help them do that. And so that work really helped us think about, okay, what could we change? Like what can be changed about how our state operates? And, you know, we have opportunities for people to create preservation restrictions for historic properties. We have conservation restrictions for agricultural lands. We have affordable housing restrictions. So what if we use those existing kind of tools and mechanisms and actually just apply them to cultural space and make it so that any municipality is allowed to create their own trust fund to support and and act within the real estate market. Because you just need to be able to kind of aggregate money from different sources. You need to be able to act across fiscal years. You can't have everything happen between July 1st and June 30th um, in terms of getting all of your money together and and thinking you're going to be effective. So just to be clear, what you're saying about California and Washington State and those success stories or case studies is that they didn't have legislative constraint. That's right. Okay. That's right. And I'll just add, backing up a step about, you know, Annis's point of we developed these pretty sophisticated indicators to create this index of all these components like proximity to an MBA station, proximity to a planned MBTA station, which everyone who's been paying astronomical rent along a proposed extension line for the last 10 years knows well. This very sophisticated index that, like Anna said, ended up telling us, okay, there's highest and high and medium and low level risk, but even the low level risk, it's bad. I understand if someone's out there being like, well, then why'd you do all that? Like, I could have told you that. Like, I live in Somerville. I know what it costs here. Actually, now I live in Lowell because I know what Somerville costs. But it's so many successful planning efforts are being able to codify and have the data and show here's what is actually happening and here's why. Because without that work being done, there's no way to advocate for it. Well, Anne, you can take it and give it to other cities or towns that people don't already know by living it. And they can predict or plan longer term by doing that work. Like we're kind of too late, but doing it anyway. So I understand that. Do you live in Somerville? I don't. Okay. You're, you're talking like you're in the middle of Union Square and the Green Line and it's affecting you. I think we've just interviewed so many people who do that I've really empathetically absorbed their pain. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I also, in learning about uh, Somerville and its unique zoning, we talked about ACE, Arts and Creative Enterprise, uh, set-asides from development that comes in having to throw some money into a pot. My understanding is that the city does not yet have a way to deal with that pot, um, and they're working on that now. The other part that we haven't talked about with Somerville, and Somerville's on my mind, I have, was there this morning dealing with 
Somerville, is the fabrication zone. So when you did your uh, mapping, I'm sure that you saw, and I have seen, so there's a fabrication zone which shows um, light industrial use, some of it arts, music, light fabrication. And when you look at that compared to the other zones, there is so little fabrication in Somerville. There is so much, uh, every other kind of zone, including, of course, residential, et cetera, et cetera. But there is so little in fabrication currently. And that's why that zoning was created in 2019 to protect it and keep it. Of course, there's a flip side to it on the development side, which is that you have to be a pretty special developer to take on a parcel like that that has fabrication and ACE rules and regulations and figure out how you're going to benefit or make money from it. And if you could see me, I'm with my hands like showing a scale, like how do you balance those things? Yeah, I think that's a really tricky question, and and it's the reason that there are so few of the parcels put into that fabrication zone, because what you don't want to have happen is that parcels and the buildings kind of fall into disrepair because there's really no viable market for their redevelopment or for even like maintaining them and making it work financially. One of the things that we have been talking about from Somerville is that they do need some mechanisms to try to tease out different types of arts uses. So there's some arts uses that really are fairly like high revenue, high income. They're going to kind of outcompete the like artist studio spaces almost every time. But in some ways, zoning is just, it's not really the best preservation tool. And that's partly this other piece of like, we don't have any tools right now to proactively preserve spaces for arts and cultural use. And so I do think that some of it is like the balance is is off because we have we're trying to use zoning to do all of the things as opposed to having other zoning tools. Many combined tools. with other tools. Exactly. And zoning is just a really blunt tool. I mean, I think most people who work at the BPDA, the zoning agency for Boston, will tell you that. It's a really blunt tool. So if you make it specific enough to really have the potential to have these you know, preservation effects, like Annis is mentioning, then it's probably going to bite you in a lot of other places because it will be so specific. It'll be incredibly restrictive elsewhere. So that's like when you get into landmarking and CPA and preservation and some of those rules, etc. So... It's interesting, though, that I think what you're also getting at is Boston, New England, Massachusetts, you know, we have a lot of historic preservation. We have a lot of, um, like you're saying, land, buildings, property, etc. And we, we do well at that. There's money for it. There's zoning restrictions around it. And people understand it and pay into it. And it is seemingly working and thriving in terms of historic preservation. Not to say that there couldn't be more. Everyone always needs more. But we could take some of those tools and apply that to arts and culture. And especially if you're talking about preservation, and some of those buildings are historic, not all of them. But I don't know, that's what I've been thinking about, too, is just like, hey, well, we have this pretty amazing CPA fund in Boston. And how come we can't do even 1% of that for arts and culture? But you're not, you're not here to solve the financial part of it. But just in terms of like you're saying, there's other sectors where it's working, where there's policy. And is that a result of advocacy? How come arts and culture is behind, I guess, if you have any insight into that? I don't know if I have like total insight. I have thoughts about it. I mean, definitely the where there are clear and 
usable um, policy tools, those are almost always the result of advocacy and long-term advocacy and kind of building coalitions and coming to agreement about what is needed. I do think that the government in the United States has largely tried to stay away from arts and culture. And so it has sort of pushed the arts and culture sector to primarily be oriented toward philanthropy as the way that it gets its problem solved. And that has been to the detriment of everybody because we really need artists and cultural stewards and arts and cultural organizations to be in conversation with our decision makers and our planners to make sure that their needs are seen and understood and taken into account for all of the decisions that are being made because every decision has ramifications and it has impacts. And when the sector and the people and the impacts are invisible to the decision makers and the planners, they just will be going. taken into account. Yeah. Right, so okay, so then the answer is, is that because there hasn't been enough advocacy for cultural space, and also that's maybe why some of this is coming to light now because there now is some advocacy for cultural space because we just keep losing it. So that, that's really interesting. And so the more advocacy the more people that join art stays here or help the cause or even just you know participate in your own civic lives oh today is election day in the state of massachusetts you voted excellent i don't have my sticker on that being civically engaged is advocacy but even just participating in your own neighborhood and in your own community and knowing what's going on and who's your city councilor and who's your state rep and kind of how are things affecting the skyline in union square is just Phenomenal. And more is coming. So anyway, so you went from the Somerville uh, risk assessment and was the three city project born from that? Or do you think that was just separate or? They weren't totally separate, but we actually developed the three city project primarily in partnership with the city of Boston. They had someone on their staff who had participated in the London cultural plan that had done a really in-depth inventory and documentation of cultural space in London and wanted to bring that to to Boston. I assume that would be Melissa Meyer. That would be Melissa Meyer, yes. And, you know, she came to us and said, you know, I I did this work in London. I think it'd be really great to do it in Boston. And we're like, well, if we're going to do it with you, we also have to include Somerville for sure. And we'd like to include Cambridge because we know that this is an issue in all three cities. And in fact, the first time we... Um, started hearing about it was from artists who were losing space in Cambridge. And as part of our project, we have heard Was that, that EMF? That was EMF. Okay, we can get back to that. So um, why don't we transition into it, and can you give an overview of the project? And I'm just calling it the, th- the Three Cities Project, but I know it has a real name. It does. So uh, the project is called Making Space for Art, Securing Cultural Infrastructure in Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville. And the goal of it is, as Annis mentioned, uh, looking at this issue of cultural space and its loss through a regional lens. And, you know, Melissa, who we just mentioned, who was uh, used to be on the cultural planning staff in Boston, I think said it best that the ecosystem artists work in is not bound by uh, municipal borders. And, you know, that that holds true for a lot, if not most, industries and residents of our region. So looking at it just from the work Boston could do just wasn't enough. And do we think Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville represent the totality of the artists' region? No, of, no, of course not, but it's a starting point. And so we've been using this project to do a couple of things. So look at 
what are policy levers or mechanism changes that we could make within these three cities or advocating to a state level uh, that would make it easier for cities uh, to preserve um, everything we've just been talking about, to have more ways and tools available to them to preserve and create more cultural space. What could the cities be doing from a policy and, and regulation side just to make it easier for creatives and artists to access and to operate cultural space that maybe has and and do artistic and cultural programming in these three cities because we have you know we don't have to look as far as California and Washington state we have case studies in each of these three cities of what's working well in Cambridge um, what's working well in Somerville and how can we learn from each other and streamline some of those so again if I'm an artist working in this regional ecosystem it's not a different uh, a different set of red tape one set of red tape is hard enough mm-hmm. um, it would be great to get to you know, one um, uh, set of bureaucracy to deal with. Uh, and then also looking at this issue of of the data. So we're talking about this example from London doing a pretty extensive uh, data collection and inventory of cultural space, figuring out how we could collect that data, how it could be used in a way so that jumping back to talking about Somerville and the arts and creative enterprise use set aside when they when staff in Somerville go to a meeting and say we're going to get this 5 to 10% of this new development online for cultural use what should it be right now we just we don't have we're not equipped with the data to say well here's what we lost here's what here's a map and here shows the desert of x y or z use um, we we also want to be able to use this data to look at this goal of no net loss knowing that and this is kind of a micro version of what you just talked about about do we need to keep people in boston or send people to fitchburg um, on the very micro level if a dance studio in cambridge closes but Two dance studios open in Somerville, like that's a win for us. And Cambridge is not tr- fighting to get that dance studio back if those, those operators are, you know, alive and well in Somerville. So we needed this regional lens and thinking about a data approach that is actually regional, so that we know where, in what ways, the net loss is happening, and in what disciplines and in what space features, so that when we have these conversations with developers and we think about these hopefully new tools that cities can use to create. And preserve space that we're creating and preserving space that there's a, de- a demand for and a pipeline of operators that are ready to slot in. So it's now November. Um, you launched this almost a year ago without getting too specific. And of course, at some point you're going to do, you know, public announcements of what was learned and what came out of it. Can you anecdotally share what the work of the project has been, like certain components and maybe if there's any trends or through lines that have come out of it? Yeah, I would say that the components of work that have gone into it have been a lot of engagement with the community. And that means a few things. We've engaged with about 80 We've called them cultural space stakeholders, um, which is a very planner ease. But folks who operate space, who access space, they could be, you know, dancers, visual artists, uh, bookers, uh, festival organizers, and hearing what just what is keeping them um, from 
doing their jobs. But then also engaging with planning staff, not necessarily arts and culture staff, who are our project partners, but other planning staff, the BPDA in Boston, um, planning and zoning department in Somerville, about what their impression is of what the arts and culture assets are in their communities that they're planning for and what data they have access to that informs the arts and culture landscape, uh, as well as data and IT folks in this, these three cities, too, to hear, you know, if someone came to you, if a planner uh, in your city came and asked, like, I really need data and mapping on the cultural space, what, where would you even start? Um, so we could get an idea of the landscape, both on the, the data and the planning side, as well as out in the field um, with residents uh, and artists who are dealing with these challenges every day. Uh, so we've been doing the engagement uh, basically the spring and the summer of this year is when the meat of that engagement took place through individual interviews, group interviews, and focus groups. So with the planning staff and municipal staff, as well as the stakeholders on the ground, we had over 100 folks who were interviewed or in focus groups. And of course, every one of those people could have given us three more people that we could have talked to as well. And so we were able to do some of that follow-up organically. And the other piece, like I've mentioned, and that that engagement has informed, has been creating a prototype of a data platform that is functional and usable by the three cities and can create really usable reports so that an arts and culture planner in Cambridge could take this report and to their city council, to their you know planning office and say, hey, this shows how much dance space exists in this portion of Cambridge versus a similar census tract area, say, in Boston, and we are losing space. We don't have it here. Um, again, trying to inform those those conversations when we're advocating for new space or preserving existing space. So um, I would say where we are in the project now is we have created a prototype of a data platform that works for those um, city staff. Now, getting all the data populated into it is a, is honestly a different story. And so we're exploring with them, like, what are realistic strategies we can use to get this fully populated? Because the functionality is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also now working with the cities to work with them individually as as well as a group to take we've done this initial mapping of here's everything we heard from folks on the ground and we've coded all the transcripts of these interviews and focus groups and and done the qualitative research coding on it to say here are the themes that keep popping up here's this word you know the word parking no surprise comes up a lot um but talking to the individual cities to say uh a temperature check of like here's where we see these policy recommendations taking shape based on the you know kind of ground truthing with the folks who are actually experiencing the barriers on the ground you know what feels like it's short term really addressable to you what feels like yes we need to do that but we need to figure out how we even approach it and what feels like a longer term because we don't we don't have the tools to actually do that change yeah and i guess for me some of the big takeaways is just how many people talked about the like layers of permission that you need to get to use the space that exists as one of the big barriers to just being able to maintain a creative practice or maintain cultural practice. And it looks a little different city by city, but it's pretty consistent that there's many different permitting processes. They're not clear. They don't always take into account what is special about the way that artistic and cultural um, programming 
kind of comes together and serves the community. They're based kind of more on like just a strict risk assessment <laughs> framework um, th- where the tendency is to say no. And so figuring out how to unpack that reality into a s- set of sort of recommendations on how to shift policy is one of the tasks that is right ahead of us. And then the other piece, you know, Hannah mentioned parking, is recognizing that actually there probably are some, a need for some specialized studies that are really understanding, okay, what are the real transportation issues that is affecting people's ability to make use of the space that exists, that is affecting their ability to maintain their kind of creative business so that they can afford space and and continue to be part of this ecosystem. So parking is certainly one of the big things that our transportation department works on, um, but not from the lens of like, what are the actual parking needs of the arts and culture sector? And what happens if we make it impossible to do art because of the way that we're thinking about our, our parking and transportation policies. And it's it's really just a matter of like having the conversation. You know, I think it all of this is not um, there's no intentionality of like no one's trying to to kind of dismantle arts and culture in our region. It's really just a matter of like we haven't uplifted those stories and we haven't kind of then used that lens to look at um, how to solve that problem effectively. So then my understanding of everything that you all just said is that it's really that arts and culture is now at the table where other sectors have already been. There are growing pains to that. There's You're doing the work of uncovering some of it. And at some point, that work will have been done and things will have been addressed. And then some of those things will have been solved. And it's really that until somewhat recently, I think the arts music and cultural sector has just kind of gone with the flow and as they get displaced they just go to the next place and then they go to the next place and they go to the next place and I can tell you that my husband on the music side he's been a professional musician in Boston for over 35 years and he's been displaced probably seven times you know no skin off his nose pack it up go to the next place like it's just what people are used to the real problem here about why it's come I think to a head is that there's nowhere else to go. (laughs) And, you know, you can't just pack it up and go somewhere because there's no somewhere to go. And I think getting back to your earlier question of, like, why is arts and culture, like, behind on this, it's that people assume that arts and culture will happen, especially in a place like Greater Boston, because it hangs its hat on being a cultural hub um, of the state, of the region, of the country, of, of the world. And so most people who aren't in this or their livelihood isn't directly affected by it, just assume that, of course, Boston is, you know, doing everyone here is doing everything we can. Of course, there must be some rules around that. It's like, no, <laughs> there's no rules. <laughs> there's there's almost no rules actually protecting this. But people assume that there are. And to your point, artists are by definition scrappy and creative. So they just keep figuring it out and making weird fringe spaces work because that's what's affordable until all of a sudden the weird fringe spaces could be labs or or really lucrative warehouses and they're not affordable anymore. So what do you think happens after you're done with the Three City project? Is the, and is that perhaps phase one and there will have to be more phases? That's one question. Another follow-up question is, have our sister and cousin cities and towns said, hey, what about us? And um, are they next in line? I think a piece of work that hasn't yet happened is, and, and will happen, but is us kind of 
ringing the gong a little bit to those other municipalities because, I mean, no lie, this has been a lot of work, this project. And so that has been on our mind, but we we haven't quite gotten there yet to start asking other municipalities, like, what do you think of this? Um, But we absolutely went into this project with the hope that this could be something we could add investment to and add interest in, especially when you're talking about a data platform, which, by the way, we have been calling phase one throughout this entire project, that this is a prototype of a data platform and how could we expand project work and work with more municipalities uh, to really make it more robust. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the low-hanging fruit will be kind of implementing things that we probably already know need to happen you know, making sure that people are defining cultural uses in their zoning in the same way across all three cities, taking the places where, you know, Boston has documented some of the core needs for good housing for artists and sharing that across the cities and figuring out how to codify that, thinking about the ACU set-asides in Somerville and, and helping to think through how Cambridge and Boston could be adopting similar tools. So just kind of taking what's already working and trying to get that more aligned across the three municipalities. But then the phase two of the work is to where we've unearthed topic areas that we really weren't able to figure out, okay, well, what is the policy landscape right now? Like, you know, noise and sound ordinances have come up, for example. And that is something that we're starting to dig into, but it actually requires some amount of effort to really understand, okay, where did these noise ordinances come from? How are they enforced? Why has this become a problem, a bigger problem now? Um, And then what are ways that we can, what are the kind of levers that we can pull to make them not be such a, a problem? And really some of it might just be educating the municipalities to understand the impact that they're having on the arts and culture sector. Some of it may need to be kind of finding some better practices about how they're written, how they're enforced, and things like that. So I do think there will need to be some additional kind of focused study on areas where, you know, there's clearly a problem, but we don't know what the exact fix for it is yet. Did your um, outreach to stakeholders include developers? It did. We we didn't end up doing like an entire focus group of developers, but we had a couple interviews with developers who have had experience in mixed use and, and cultural space projects. And I did want to add, you know, we're talk, talking earlier when you mentioned, you know, doing this balance of how do you make fabrication make sense and work out, you know, developers are developers are not necessarily, you know, the villain in this equation, right? There's plenty of developers out there who got into that field because they wanted to see smart growth and mixed use and really interesting, vibrant communities, right? Mm -hmm. And again, they don't have the information from us yet to be able to say like, and this is specifically what we could build out that would help this community, this city, this region. So there's a lot of developers that are saying like, well, let us know what you find out, like invite us to this conversation. Uh, so I, I'd be remiss to not mention that that piece of the equation. I'm glad that you said that. And we've come across all kinds of developers, as I'm sure we all have, you know, I mean, and there are some, you know, giant behemoths and there are some little tiny 
guys and gals, and then there's some in between. There are some that focus just on affordable housing. There are some that focus on just labs. There are some that focus just on arts and culture. There's, you know, schools, etc. blah, blah. And you're absolutely right. There are some that are good guys and want and believe in development without displacement. And there are some that um, are really good neighbors and that are really skilled in trying to, with intent, follow through and do good. The other thing that we talk about all the time, but we talked about specifically this morning with developers, I don't know if this is surprising, but just a huge disconnect of culture and language. And maybe you found some of this in your outreach to stakeholders in terms of like, what is it like to be an artist and musician and what goes on in your life and what you need and how you navigate that versus government versus developers. And today we had this conversation about, well, we have all this space, we'll just make it co-working for artists. And right there was this nugget of, wait, you're not, you know, there's a disconnect here and there's a language and um, because artists and musicians, I mean, when we're talking about workspaces, you know, you basically need a private space, sometimes a soundproof private space, and in a musician's case, where you store perhaps twenty or $30,000 worth of gear that is not co-working. And I think you're probably in a similar position, and maybe the arts councils of each of the cities, and certainly art stays here, we think that one of our jobs is translation. And it seems really kind of silly to say that we're all smart, we all want the same thing, we're, no one's trying to screw anybody, but like actually saying, well, what do you mean here, and what do you mean, and what do you mean? And like, you know, for some developers to understand, they might think, oh, low-cost co-working space for artists, or makerspace, is totally different than private artist studios. So anyway, I just wanted to share that anecdote about translation of culture. And another thing that also came up in terms of actual artists and musicians, the scale is just imbalanced in terms of, this is some of the things that we've found in our work and case studies, is if you're a developer, that's your job, that's what you do, and you know, you probably have someone that does community relations, and you have someone that does, you know, presentations, and someone who's, you know, all the team that works in development. Some of those folks' job is to just go out and talk to the community and, you know, get community education and buy-in and work with government relations and public relations and so on and so forth. If you're just an artist or a musician in your space, you know, you're working your day job, most likely, you're doing your art on the side, most likely, you might have a family, and then, oh, you have to learn about how do I keep my space? How do I get civically involved with government? And like, how do I testify at a public hearing? And what I mean about the imbalance, it's not so much that artists and musicians can't participate in that, but A, do you already know? B, can you fit it into your life? And C, can you somehow move the needle when all these other folks are in government and in development are doing it for their day jobs? That's what they get paid to do. That's what they're expert at. And the imbalance, um, I wonder if you heard any of that in your outreach. Yes. And people have become self-taught, because there's no other option, self-taught many subject experts in planning, which I can tell you they did not want to become, but they also often have not been able to like piece the whole story together to figure out how this all fully actually works. Because you know, to fully figure out how permit approvals, building approvals happen in Boston, you 
I do need a a full seminar, if not a master's degree on it. And so, yes, we heard that over and over from folks. I've tried to figure this out. And I think we can all appreciate that the folks we talked to in this project, which was a variable group, certainly, but they're still self-selecting that they were like, yes, I'll come talk to the Metropolitan Area Planning Council about this issue of cultural space policy. So they were the most informed and active in advocacy um, slice of the pool here. So they were the most informed and they they were willing to talk to us. And they still were saying, like, how does this work and how do I possibly have time to to do this and learn this. And, and I, even if I do, can it move the needle? Right. And I think that, again, going back to one of the earliest things we talked about today is this rise of arts and culture planning as a field and arts and culture planners and arts councils having full-time staff within city and town governments. That is a, a role that we play or should play is being that translator to uh, the stakeholders we serve and a big big chunk of those stakeholders are artists. One of the things that we hope to do is come up with a glossary. And maybe we'll work on that with you. Absolutely. That's a that's a great idea. And I just wanted to add that, you know, I see one of the big benefits of, of having arts and culture planning as a part of what government does and have government have to be responsive to the arts and culture sector is it trains government to interface and interact with individuals. We're not really well set up to do that. We're mostly set up to interact with businesses or organizations, but we need to serve the individuals and the families. And and artists within their role are individual. And, and not a collective. They're not right. a collective. It is a way to actually make government more responsive to and more aware of the impact that it has on the individual experience of being part of these systems. And I would add one more thing that, again, the benefit of being in a regional planning agency with all these areas of expertise within it is that we, we really do inform and teach each other. So we're also, as the arts and culture department in a large regional planning agency, we're translating to the transportation planners, to the housing planners, to the zoning experts. I'm not a transportation or housing or zoning expert, so they're teaching me every day. But then we're also joining their projects and having them join our projects so we can work toward you know this ideal future where everyone's automatically thinking about, oh, how would this project affect arts and culture, though? Thank you. Yeah, I think I have an understanding of something and then I talk to other people and assess, reassess, now strategize again, then talk to more people, assess, reassess, talk again. And it's just, it's overwhelming for me to have worked in arts and culture in different ways for over 30 years and only now in the past few years, really be thinking about focusing, unpacking space. And, you know, so much of my career in history was always about sales and marketing and about branding. You know, how do we get more concert tickets sold? How do we get more records sold? How do we get more coverage in the media? How do we get more in theater, in opera, uh, butts in seats? And all of that is still real and has its own needs and its own ecosystem. But coming to focus on like, where is the work made? You know, where do you write the song? Where do you come up with the idea for a novel? Where do you work out the first few riffs of a song? You know, just all of this is like the the back end of what you end up seeing on stage or in a museum or in a gallery. And that 
we need to raise our hands and say we need places to work so that you can go to the museum or the gallery or read the book or rent the movie and you know people on our end have been talking about like what is the role of higher ed uh, in Massachusetts and how can they help people have been talking about philanthropy and I haven't thought about what you said about government in general or within the United States that philanthropy has been kind of the answer and that planning and philanthropy uh, needs to come together to be also part of this and advocacy and that there hasn't been enough. And even with us, there still isn't enough. So let's pivot a little bit to how either what this three city project can connect with legislature or with mass creative and maybe we can talk about mass creative which is the legislative arts advocacy uh, agency in massachusetts has just put forth a handful of bills and acts regarding arts and culture and one of them is about cultural space that's right so we've been working really closely with mass creative this year they're a wonderful partner and have been a thought partner with us particularly on the cultural space Piece. They have conversations also with Mass Cultural Council, with other folks across the sector. They just have such a deep network in this space that they get a lot of information that they can synthesize very quickly. And we were able to come to them and with some of the learnings that we had from the Somerville Project to just say, you know, we're seeing that there's a need for this idea. And, you know, Emily Ruddock, the executive director of Mass Creative, said, yeah, I'm hearing that there's a need for this, too. <laughs> and so we, you know, really work together to kind of pull together some draft legislation. And that is what we were talking about. It would create a, a preservation restriction for creative use, kind of right where all the other preservation restrictions are in Mass General Law. And it would allow for municipalities to create a trust fund modeled after the affordable housing trust funds where they can aggregate both real estate, real property, and financial assets from multiple sources. So you could pull in the the dollars from a buyback program, but you could also pull in tax credit, new market tax credits. You can pull in a lot of different sources so that you can get enough money in one place to actually have an impact in, in the real estate market. And so we're really excited about this legislation, and it's one of so Mass Creative has five bills on its um, platform, and MAPC has in, endorsed four of them as part of our policy priorities. So um, there's the Creative Space Preservation Act. There's also the PLACE Act, which would create funding for public art and would also codify um, a process by which municipalities can um, commission public art that is compliant with another tricky law called 30B, which is our procurement law, and would also kind of bring in the best practices for how you do public art commissions that municipalities hadn't been able to use prior to this. And then there's the Downtown Vitality Act that would use on dollars from online sales tax to actually fund um, district management entities and planning for, for districts, including cultural districts, would be an eligible entity in this, which would be amazing. And then the cultural equity and tourism bill that I, I think is just a really great way to think about how do we expand the kind of organizations, arts and culture organizations that are represented as part of the tourism field that we, that really is like so central to what arts and culture is, is producing. So when you say MAPC endorses four of those, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that the advocacy folks at MAPC then also are trying to elevate that in the legislature? That's right. So we have a government affairs team and they 
we have policy priorities across all of the areas of our work, but our government affairs team, you know, gets meetings with legislators and um, make sure that our council and our officers are aware of the the bills so that we're able to kind of activate the networks that we have, including our municipalities, to really be more vocal supporters of the key legislation that we think is really important. And, you know, we can also be thinking about, okay, well, even if this isn't passed as a, you know, into law, are there other sort of legislative opportunities that where it, it we might be able to kind of make movement on this or get something passed, like economic development bond bill or, or other ways. And I just want to highlight that this is an example of a relationship, a really productive working relationship between an advocacy organization that's statewide like Mass Creative and then a regional planning agency like MAPC because we have, again, not just arts and culture, but all these um, areas of expertise in MAPC um, and our government affairs team that's taking all of that to the state house um, and figuring out who to talk to and which subject experts to bring into each of those meetings. Uh, and, and you know, Annis did a lot to help contribute to the writing, the drafting of those bills to add the expertise she and our department bring. Um, and then Mass Creative, their advocacy, the amount of advocacy experience they have and PR experience and knowing the narratives to make this all make sense um, to people who it definitely matters to. But so much of this stuff that we're talking about that is really exciting that could be huge change from these bills, a lot of people who work in the sector would understandably think like, well, that must already be be a thing. Right. And it's and it's not. <laughs> you know, it takes real advocacy experts like the folks at Mass Creative to tell that story in a way that uh, makes sense and also shows the urgency and importance around the legislative process. Well, it just also goes to show, I mean, of course, we've um, done a podcast episode with uh, Emily and uh, Kelsey at Mass Creative, but we probably need to do a follow-up in a second episode where we actually talk about how those bills came to be and kind of why and how they rose from probably, you know, if there's five, there was probably 25 or 105 and how we got to that. And so I guess... On behalf of Art Stays Here, I want to say thank you to MAPC and specifically you guys and Mass Creative for helping come up with those bills and talking with our legislature and also bringing awareness about what artists and what culture and our sector needs from legislators because they certainly, for the most part, don't know. Yeah, I do think there certainly are legislators who do know and who are real champions of the sector, but the work is really getting the word out to those who don't have it at the front of their minds and really help build that story. And, you know, we've been doing verbal testimony and written testimony. And one of the things that our, you know, Mass Creative and our partners are asking us for is can you help with the data story? Can you help us get the reliable data that helps our all the legislators who aren't already bought into this to understand the, the scale of the problem, the urgency of the need. Um, and so we've been really grateful to all the folks who, you know, we have available, all of our, our data services department, our government affairs team, communications. They've really been helpful at helping us pull together all of that work. Great. Well, um, I want to thank you both for being here today. And um, I've learned a lot just from this conversation. And is there anything that you would like to share that we haven't talked about? Or is there a way for folks to get involved? Or do they get involved with MAPC? Or should they get involved with Mass Creative? Or like, what does the every man or woman do? 
I think the answer is all of the above. Um, we do, you know, we send out about a monthly communication where we let folks know about, you know, things like the policy advocacy and what can be done. We also do a lot of project work. You know, Boston Cambridge Somerville is, you know, project we were talking about today and, and Somerville's past project, but we do projects all over this region of 101 cities and towns. And, you know, I'm sure you have listeners throughout that region. So to be able to plug into stuff that's happening, you know, uber locally too, we give updates on that. We have, you know, might have a community-wide survey that's out in Revere or Needham and really, really want, you know, more responses and more investment in those projects. So you can go to mapc.org. Uh, you can sign up for MAPC-wide updates. You can also go to the arts and culture page and sign up for arts and culture-related updates and just be on the lookout for things that are happening in your specific community. Too. And we'd love for more people to be aware that arts and culture planning is a thing. And so if and when folks are getting municipally engaged in their own communities, to ask those questions of, is, is there a cultural plan here? And some cities and towns have the bandwidth and the capacity to have staff, you know, people on staff who could run those. But we work with a lot of cities and towns who don't have that bandwidth, and they come to MAPC and apply for technical assistance, and they end up, you know, not paying out of municipal pocket, but just with municipal time and and in-kind match uh, to, to bring that type of planning project into communities that might not have the resources to do it on their own. I guess the other thing I would add is that you maybe you think as a regional planning agency, we're somehow all knowing about all the different things that are happening on the ground. But, you know, we mostly are structured to work directly with cities and towns. And there's a lot of stuff that we kind of hear about happening. I know there's grassroots efforts to kind of inventory cultural spaces. There's folks trying to solve the problems on their own. And I definitely would just encourage anyone in that role to reach out to us and see if there's ways that we can kind of combine efforts or just don't assume that we know because we don't always have the like deep networks in every neighborhood or every municipality to know everything that's going on and we definitely love to hear about it and love to find ways that we can be better serving all of the the folks in the community. Great. Well, um, Art Stays Here will definitely be coming to MAPC for sharing some of your content through our newsletter, and we'll follow up with this conversation and connect regarding the mass creative bills. And thank you for doing that work. We're really looking forward to seeing the results of phase one and learning about phase two, three, four, and five. And thank you so much for the work that you do and for helping our sector raise its hand. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.